Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 531. And today I'm joined by Andy Osho, and we have a hell of a conversation. As you'll hear quite early on, I've been a fan of Andy for a while, and Andy has been a low-key inspiration for me for a while, which they were completely unaware of until we had this discussion. But there's always that fear and panic, as I say a million times. If it's someone you've not met before, you don't know how the conversation is going to be. I said that with Shaggy the other week. It's one of the best conversations I've ever had. As Susan Wacoma last week, I've already chatted with. I knew it would be as good as it was. So thank you for all the love that's coming in for that one. But um, yeah, I was uh, excited to talk to Andy. And you'll see from the first five minutes how this conversation is going to go. Andy's relentless openness and honesty and comfort within themselves, if I might say. A lot of our conversation, although we do talk about projects like Blue Lights, like I May Destroy You, like Andy's two novels, Asking for a Friend and Tough Crowd. While we discuss all of that, and we don't discuss certain things due to the strikes, this was recorded during the strikes, we passionately support the strikes, so we won't be talking about um, anything on your streamers, essentially, anything on the companies against which the strikes are focused. Yeah, this is just a conversation of of finding yourself, of finding comfort within yourself, and finding your way through life. It's a really interesting one. If you're familiar with Andy, you're in for a treat. If you're not, you may be in for even more of a treat because you're just about to discover just someone that, for me, seems to have their shit together and that kind of discusses the journey to getting their sh- shit together as such. So, yeah. It's a really good one. We're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. We've got all sorts of merch over there, including swimwear, sunglasses and caps, which, you know, have been in high demand this past week or so. But we've also got winter stuff, so get ready for that. Prepare yourselves. We're brought to you by twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio, which is where I stream and do all sorts of fun stuff. I've been talking over there actually a lot about next week's guest. Next week's episode is with a a director called Otto Baxter, and he's amazing. He's he's got Down syndrome. He's a fucking terror, but a wonderful, wonderful conversation and a wonderful human and artist. And yeah, I chat about all sorts of things. I like that over at Twitch. If, if you're not into gaming, it ain't just about that. You can come over. I've got a whole music section over there if you're into the music stuff. And just, yeah. It's about all those things. And you can support the podcast over at patreon.com forward slash Pip. That's probably everything, isn't it? Let's get into this conversation because it's a beauty. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 531 with Andy Osho. Right, I'm joined today by Andy Osho. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to to be joining you. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you. There's a million things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about your book. And I've been excited to talk to you because you're completely unaware of this, but, but because we've, we've never met. But you've been a low-key inspiration for me for a long time. Because what? of um, there were years I wanted to do acting, but I was doing music and felt I wasn't qualified to do acting. And I'd become a fan of you as a comedian and then over the years you'd pop up in more and more shows and I'd be like you can do 
anything you want. Like you can do multiple oh. things. You can do acting and comedy and numerous and podcasts and all that. So yeah. yeah, I'm excited to talk about all of that. But I do want to circle back first to how are you? I want to. I, I think that's a serious question these days. So I want to. How are you? Is your day good? Is your week looking good? Is everything well? I appreciate the question. Do you know I am good, but at the moment. I am navigating perimenopause and it is a bitch. (laughs) Yeah, how's that? It's really, you know what it is, is like when, especially for someone like me who navigates the world pretty much through what they're thinking. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not an in my body type of person by default. Some people are really like that. Do you know what I mean? They're real earthy people and they're in their bodies. I'm, I'm, I navigate through my brain, logic, you know, my creativity all comes from, head first and then it drops down into my body. And so a lot, one of the big uh, symptoms of perimenopause is brain fog. Mm-hmm. And that isn't just like forgetfulness, which is kind of cute sometimes. So I don't know yeah, why I came yeah. in here for what, you know, why I came into this room for, but it's like getting your words wrong, not recognizing faces, not being able wow. to understand logical things. Like even like an example I always use is, you know, I had to untangle a, um, a cable which requires a degree of logic. This needs to loop through here to, uh, you know, untangle that bit of the knot, you know, that yeah. type of thing. And I was just confounded by this <laughs> seemingly wow. impossible task of like, un- so I just cut it up. No, I didn't. But like, um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's things like that on top of not being able to remember things. And obviously as an actor, mm. one of the things we need more than anything is a, is a good memory, even if it's just like the short term thing. So when when you ask me how I am, I'm I'm fine, but I am in this space of just like my mind is not what I know it to be. And so it's a little bit of what can I do to rectify that? How can I be okay with it not being what it was and not thinking too far ahead of like, is this my life now? Just being slightly dumb. <laughs> you I was going to say, I guess there's pros and cons of, of having a logical mind there because obviously you're so much in your head, but at least with a logical outlook, you can identify what it is and know. Do you know what I mean? You can go, I, I, I know what this is. I know what's happening rather than it being more just, as you say, is this me? Is this, is this who I am now? You can kind of, yeah, identify it a bit and, and address as best you can. It's fascinating though. I'm so clueless on all of that stuff because so much of it just isn't discussed, isn't put out there, isn't explained. It isn't at all. And, you know, even for me, so I was at a, a book festival and there was a lot of like talks going on. And there was this doctor, uh, Dr. Nigat Arif, she was um, speaking about perimenopause. And I sort of heard it in the background. And I was like, well, that's nothing to do with me. So <laughs> I just sort of yeah. ignored it. But then, but then I was listening and, oh, hang on, that's happened to me. Oh, I've been experiencing that. All these symptoms that she was starting to list. I was like, mm. oh my God, I'm in perimenopause. And like, nobody tells you, what the symptoms are. It's only recently that this has become a conversation and there's so many different areas of your life that it affects. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation around puberty, what happens for women or young women in puberty. Not a lot at this end of the yeah. <laughs> of the life sort of journey. And it's as big a deal in terms of yeah. what it does to your brain and to your body as as puberty. But, but it's only now that the conversation is sort of coming to the fore. It's madness. It's fascinating as well, because I think anything like this, you can then overanalyze as well, if you know what I mean. Like if a a friend of mine has had a a terrible brain injury and has so many symptoms from it, but sometimes when they're beating themselves up over it, they're saying like, oh, I'll I'll walk in the room and forget why I went in there. I'll be like, 
I do that. I've I've not had a brain injury. I'm not I'm not going through perimenopause. Like there's there's certain things. It's like sometimes it is just how we are and what we do. But as soon as you've got something, I know my r- relation to that. Every time I've had things like I get dizzy when I stand up a lot and things like that. For a long period, I was like it's because of all the drugs I did in my teens. <laughs> <dreams. That's, laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it must be. I've got this thing to blame. When a lot of the time, our bodies are just weird and we don't understand them. They're incredibly complex and they're doing a million things at once. Like with the standing up and getting dizzy, I finally went to the doctors about it after a lot of of nagging. Because every now and then I'd I'd pass out like fairly regularly on this thing. I'd love it because I'd I'd know I'm about to go. I'd get comfy. You go all warm. (laughs) I'd be like, oh, this is, oh, this is great. But um, (laughs) that's my, my positive outlook. But I went to the doctor about it. Because I'd always said to my mum and uh, and to my mate Amy and others, like I was like, it's just because I'm tall. It's just because I'm tall. That's okay. all it is. And I, I finally went into the doctors and he just went, yeah, it's because you're tall. Drink more water. Get right. up slower. Your right. blood hasn't got time to get from that position up to that position. How tall and, are you? Um, I'm six foot four. So, uh-huh, you know, okay. it's tallish. I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think of myself you're as You're not tall, technically so a giant, kind of a, but you are tall. Not yet. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you, you're expecting some more growing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, hopefully, you know. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I can always aim for that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you're you're right. I, I think that the trick is to, or not the trick, but I suppose part of the journey is being able to distinguish, like, because I know myself, or I think I know mm. myself prior to this starting. And yeah, I would walk into a room and f- forget why I went in there or forget my keys. Yeah. But now it's, it's the frequency with which it's happening. Yeah. And then yeah. on top of that, you know, the confusion and the not recognizing people and the self, you know, a big thing that happens as well is like, you know, in terms of your confidence, because, you know, some of the hormones that are getting out of whack, they affect things like, yeah, your self-confidence, your Mm. sense of self-worth, your anxiety, all those sorts of things. So it's recognizing, hang on. Yeah, I was a bit socially anxious before, but this is a different level. This is something else. And then also realizing that when you start medication, if you do, or if you take complementary things to deal with it, that, oh, oh, actually I feel a bit better today. That that mm. anxiety that was tying me up in knots and having me be awkward with people and not wanting to go out so much. That's that's lessening. So it's kind of it's kind of a dance with knowing there's certain things, there's certain things about you that are always going to be the case. Like I, I tend to rush things and can be quite anxious anyway. So, mm. so that's always going to be a, a base level of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but this was like next level, but you know, it is what it is. And uh, apparently it ends at some point and you sort of, you know, the, the hormones settle down and you become postmenopausal basically. And then, and yeah. then, then you're probably into a whole different world of problems. <laughs> Yeah, it seems fascinating how much we still continue to learn about humans and the human body, and particularly w- women, because they were the mm. so ignored part of science for so long. Oh, it's like, so oh, we don't need so. to know about that. And again, I love that there's all these developments in d- different medications, in supplementary medications, and in just getting a greater understanding of things. But it's yeah. it's fascinating. It's f- fascinating how, as I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, I think, I was reading an article reading an article about a book. Look, I've barely even done (laughs) half the research here. I was reading an article about the book, but it's talking about recent breakthroughs in discovering the plasticity of the brain and how we have a lot of things where we go, and I have this all the time. I'm like, I'm just quite, I get socially exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anxious, but more at that, I'm now at that age where I'm like, no, I just know how to fuck off the anxiousness it's like that would make me anxious so I'm not going to go yes <laughs> like it's, right it's, I it's that, that yeah. kind of thing but yeah. um 
and learning that so much of that stuff that we just go, oh, that's just how I am, is actually adjustable and is actually changeable. And from the article, it just gave kind of parts of it. And it was through like repeated exercises and almost micro doses. So if there is a social anxiety, you kind of microdose by making sure you talk to the person at the till in the shop every day. And that gives you that small amount of social interaction so that then the bigger social interactions come along and it's not all of a sudden overwhelming and too much and things like this and stuff like that. I just find it's fascinating. But yeah, yeah it is, it is really interesting. There, well, there is. And and I think one of the things about the this is just who I am thing, the other or one facet of it is that people sometimes self-sabotage to reaffirm what they believe mm-hmm. about themselves. So say they are yeah. socially anxi- anxious. Yeah. Then they'll go to a big party. They'll have a horrible time because it was too overwhelming. And they'll go, (laughs) see, (laughs) I told you. Whereas what you're you you need to be coached through it almost like, or, or at least have a guide, even if it's just reading a book of like how to, as you say, microdose so that you can slowly edge away from the Mm. behavior that you want to change or enhance or correct or whatever towards something else, rather than just, you know, throwing yourself in at the deep end and then just going, see, (laughs) going out to parties is horrible. I told you I'd be overwhelmed. (laughs) Of course you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just went to like a festival. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, uh, let's get on to onto the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, not this <laughs> and, just this last six and, months. <laughs> and talk about all of that. Because again, it's kind of as as I said, there's lots I want to talk about because of your drifting between disciplines, which again is something I've always l- loved, but sometimes felt like an outcast for, for doing, particularly in the kind of area I'm from. You're meant to figure out what you want to do for a living and then do that rather than go, well, I've done that for a bit. I want to do a bit of this now. And I want to yeah. also do this at the, at the same time of that. So I want to kind of rewind all the way back and find out what kind of kid you were. You grew up in in, in London, right? What, what were you into? Was there always a goal of what you wanted to do? Or was it just everything appealing? It wasn't like a conscious goal, but I did love performing and I loved being creative. I used to write all the time and read a lot and music was a big part of my like world growing up. It was quite, um, it was a solace actually music because I think I'm still trying to make sense of what, what happened at school because the story I told for a long time was I was bullied Mm. and I'm not saying that that wasn't what happened, but it wasn't quite as straightforward as, you know, get her after school type of bullying. It was more like, ungenerous teasing probably and uh, coupled with me being a very sensitive kid who was quite I'm, I'm still quite an earnest person do you know what I mean I'd rather do something sincerely I'm not very good at being cynical and a bit snide about things which means that often I'll miss the joke or whatever because mm. it's a level of cynicism that oh my yeah. brain's not attuned for that cool okay we're being snide all right <laughs> you know what I mean it's like a bit <laughs> yeah, of an adjustment <laughs> so yeah so so I was a very sort of I had a lot of energy. Like I didn't know what to do with it. In fact, there was like one instance where, you, you know, I don't know if what it was like at your school, but like we had to line up, sit in in, in rows, in our form rows, mm-hmm. like um, at the start of lunchtime. And then we'd go, I think we'd go into our forms and do the register or whatever. But there was one time where I just got a, a little stereo and I was playing music and I was just dancing and dancing and dancing. I could not stop. And people were coming in and they were sitting in their rows and just looking at me like, is she all right? And I was like... like 
sweating and just because I just had so much energy and not very self-aware. Like I wasn't thinking Mm. this is like a completely uncool thing to do in front of my entire year group as they're sitting there. But but I, you know what I mean? I was just like, it was weird because I was comfortable with my self-expression, but I wasn't necessarily conscious of it. So if someone had said like, what you're doing is insanely uncool, then I probably would have become very self-aware and and embarrassed and all the rest of it. But I just didn't have that. So I would just do random mad shit like that. Or or like one time I learned a little drum lick or whatever. And then I just played it for about 30 minutes. We had a little (laughs) drum cupboard in the school. And I was like... (coughs) It was like a really simple one like that. But I just had this energy that I didn't know what to do with it. And so I used to have to do things like that just to... I wasn't consciously thinking, I've got all this energy. What shall I do with it? I was just like, I need to do this now. (laughs) Here's my natural reaction to this energy and this moment and this this music. What kind of music was sending you to those those places? I was originally going to ask uh, what kind of music were you escaping to? But then you told the story of dancing in front of the whole class. So it's not an escape. It's very much an an enhancement of life rather than an escape from reality. So so what kind of music were you into at that point? I was such a weird kid. So um, (laughs) I did not have a, like a music that I go yeah. to like you know how some people are like I just really love the Smiths I love what they're about their lyrics blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I never really related to music in that way and I still don't really I don't really pay attention to lyrics I was in the choir so for a minute there it was like classical music and baroque mm-hmm. and things like that I'd stopped listening to pop music for a little while and so there was this big chunk this probably four year chunk of pop music that I just didn't know People would yeah. play like Take On Me and I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. Who, who are these guys? <laughs> like, are you all right? <laughs> like, this is, like, this is number one for like two months or something. I've, I I've love never that heard though. The, the, the purity of that is beautiful because I think there's a big thing, particularly when I was growing up, there was a lot of pop music is tarnished by the the fact it's pop music, by the fact it's popular, by all these other things. And there's so many songs I go back to now and go, oh, wow, this is, like, I get why everyone loved this now. At the time, I was a little alternative kid, and I was like, nah, it's, it's too mainstream, this and that, and you hear right. it, like, no, this is beautiful, like, this is amazing. Yeah. Like, there, there's a reason it was so popular, and it evoked that in in people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, kind of I mean, I, on that, I, was, I mean, I've on my, you know, whatever, go to Spotify playlist, there's quite a few sort of 80s, songs and listen to come on eileen the other day and it's just like i'm still not really sure what it's about but lyrically it's so fascinating and musically it's gorgeous it's just the builds the builds it's just just astounding and his vocal on it and 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 yet it becomes this sort of drunken sort of everyone arms around each other wedding song when actually lyrically and musically it's just a lot going on it's got a complicated song Mm. Which is why probably none of us know the lyrics to it. I was, um, this is a really weird tangent, but it's specifically related to that that song. I'd stream on Twitch every now and then, and I kind of improvised a story about being in a Dexys Midnight Runners cover band, but just doing that build for like 20 minutes. So the, (laughs) come on. Eileen, like just extend that so it's just you've got the room in an absolute because as that builds and builds and builds yeah, and gets yeah. faster and he's he's then improvising over the top of the yeah. the main 
the backing vocal. It's like I think that that would give me a heart attack if it, 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 if I can choose how I go. It would be <laughs> hearing that build and build and build until yeah. my mind and body can't take anymore. And then yeah, like, literally I'm like out. overwhelm. Never <laughs> yes. hearing the drop. Never oh, hearing no. it kick in. No, Just no, build no, that's and build it. And build. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's again. I loved that it was just the essence of music rather than any specific band or any specific genre. It's just how music impacts you. Yeah, I I think there was a lot of that. And what I've noticed, I mean, listen, uh, there was a bross phase. I I should full disclosure, there was a bross phase. But, But I think what I've noticed about what I listen to now and probably what I've always listened to is it's joyful. Like, mm. I, I I love gospel music. If you make me pick one genre and I can't listen to anything else, then I would take gospel, hands down, choral gospel music over anything because it's mm. t- just such a joyful sound. Yeah. I mean, we're going to jump forwards and backwards a lot here, but hearing you speak of an almost... N- naive level of positivity if you know what I mean like to the extent that it's like you're misunderstanding stuff or yeah. I'm sure you would get misunderstood if you're because yeah. again I've had that in the past I'll say something genuinely heartfelt and it'll sound sarcastical because yeah. people don't talk to people like that or compliment their friends yeah. in that way I want to jump far forward now and we will go back again but how did you find that in comedy then because particularly that era of like when you were getting into comedy comedy can be quite cynical a lot of the tv shows like i love eight out of ten cats and mock the week and all those kind of things but but they're generally c- cynical you're there to be c- c- cynical i've just been up at the fringe this week and there's a guy called rob alton who i see every year and one of the reasons i see him every year is because it's the most positive beautiful heartfelt show Ever. Yeah. And I love a bit of cynicism as well in comedy, but I go and see his show and it's like, this is just someone who thinks differently and it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, how was that stepping into comedy with that outlook when that's not necessarily an outlook that's embraced in comedy? No, I I, I think I um, kind of engaged a mode, you know, like to, and not, not consciously, again, I wasn't thinking, right, suppress that sort of <laughs> naive optimism. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think I just uh, sort of, not created a character, but mm-hmm. uh, took elements of who I was, I suppose, and put that out there and kept the other stuff packed away. And as I'm talking to you, I'm sort of wondering if that was partly the reason why I sort of drifted away from comedy because mm. the, the it became incongruous who, who I was with who I was having to be on stage. I, I remember feeling, consciously feeling that. And, you know, as we're talking about it, I wonder if that was what was underneath it. Yeah. Is that, that because I, I remember also having a thought of like what I'm thinking about or what interests me to to ponder sort of thing. I don't know how to make that funny. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of stuck talking about bendy buses and, you know, whatnot, whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose I could have knuckled down and tried to make it work, but it just all sort of naturally happened. It, mm. it it was a little bit challenging, but it sort of comedy just naturally drifted out of my life. I didn't have to really consciously do anything other than stop booking gigs. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was say starting to turn stuff down, but I I didn't go right. That's it, guys. It's 2013. I'm out. <laughs> 
You know, yeah, I kept yeah, doing yeah. the odd one here and there and enjoying it less and less. And everyone felt like more like, uh, wow, I did it. I haven't done a gig in six weeks and I did it rather than, right, cool. That's that one done. This joke worked, this joke worked, this didn't, you know, which is more yeah. your attitude when you're regularly yeah. doing it. Yeah. So so it started to become, oh, look at me doing a stand-up gig once every six months. Yeah. <laughs> I got through it. <laughs> you can't carry on like that. Not with no, stand-up anyway. <laughs> I can definitely see how that, not necessarily building a character, but how that adjustment of what you would want to get across can come in when you've got a brain that, that runs off logic. Because you can see the patterns and how jokes, how a cynical joke, or, or not even cynical, how a topical joke works. Mm. How, oh right, well, all I actually need to do is talk about, so the bendy buses are a thing, all I need to do is go this, this, this. I need to put the image into people's mind. I need to address it and then I need to subvert it or or, mm. or whatever the approach would be. So I can see how that would almost be an easier route than going, how do I get across all the all the love I have for the world? How do right. I get across all the positivity I have for the world? It's like, exactly. that's not quite as easy a structure. No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's Because also, you probably you're vulnerable with doing that. Maybe that was what yeah. I was turning away from. Because yeah. I, I saw joke writing as puzzles. Do you know what I mean? It was it was like a, almost like a logic puzzle. That's that's how I approached it. And so when a joke didn't work, it was just like, okay, mm, do we need to put this word the uh, uh, the beginning? Is it the, you know what I mean? Like just constantly mm, mm. T- tweaking the logic puzzle. Yeah. Where whereas as you say, that type of more soul searchingy type of and you see people do it. I remember watching Simon Amstel's show and just thinking, I'm loving this, but I can't see how it's done. I, yeah, I, you know, yeah. when I when I did listen to or watch Louis C.K. and stuff, it, it's the same thing. It's just like, it's not even a joke joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How is he I, doing this? So, I, de- you know. I definitely recommend, and this is, again, this is nothing to do with the podcast here, but I definitely recommend if you get a chance to see R- Rob Alton when he's touring his show, uh-huh. go. Because it's exactly that. You sit there going, I don't really know what I've watched. Yes. Like, I don't know if there were any jokes in it, but yes. I laughed and I cried and I felt moved and yeah. all this. It's like, yeah. I love it. But again, in the tradition of, of jumping around, <laughs> I want to now jump all the way forward and talk about your books and writing. Because again, I'm aware that I get over-obsessed with the nuances of acting and comedy because they're the things I'm obsessed with. Mm. And then we'll get to, to the end of the conversation and quickly go, so you've done some books, have you? <laughs> um, tell me about that. So let's jump into that now. Because <laughs> yeah, again, sure. it's a completely different discipline, but it does almost appeal I think to a logical or an organized mind because it is it is it discipline is the right word right so tell me about your your novels well I mean in terms of writing I, I had this coach and he was basically saying that there's kind of two types of writers and one is mm. where to simplify what he said essentially you know your characters really well but you don't know what happens to them so like Tarantino yeah. apparently he spent two months with uh, Jules and Vincent before committing them to the page, like in terms of Pulp Fiction. Wow. And then there's people who, they have the concept or the premise or the story, but they don't know who it happens to. And yeah. that's more me. So I right. always start with, okay, so there's these three girlfriends and they create this, you know, this dating game where they ask people out, but for each other. Now I don't know who it's happening to. I know there's these three girls, but yeah. who are they? How do I make them interesting so that when this thing happens to them, it's the most interesting version of this story? Yeah. So to some people, especially people who start with character, that would seem counterintuitive. How can you say what happens and you don't know who it's happening to? Yeah. And then, you know, people approach it the other way around. They just love this person. They've got this three-dimensional character 
but there's nothing for them to do, just bouncing off other people at the moment. So now they have to find a compelling thing that makes who they are the most interesting journey for them. They've got to find that journey. So yeah, uh, So, but I'm definitely a concept That's first. That's really interesting. I love that. Um, I've had a, a novel in kind of development for, for a while and the best bit of feedback I got on it once was a publisher kind of saying, look, this is great, but you've not really introduced these characters. And it, and it was exactly that. It's like, I've lived with these characters for so long right. that I've gone straight into the, yeah, I've, now yeah. got, I've now got the story for them. Here's yeah. the story, here's what's happening. And they're yeah. like, who are these people? And because b- b- because I've done the Tarantino thing, I've lived with them for so yeah. long, I've not given any introduction and let <laughs> right, the reader in on who they are. Just like, here we go, here's <laughs> these guys, here's this, this. Like, yeah, yeah. what? Why is he doing that? It's like, oh. Oh, yeah. you don't know about that, do you? Yeah. <laughs> this uh, whole backstory that I've not shared. But that's it. That's oh, fascinating. That's yeah, because we're we're basically the flip side of that. Oh, well, I mean, ideally, yeah. what this um, coach is saying is that you find a way to marry those two disciplines. So, because what can happen is those people that start with concept, their characters are a little bit wooden. You can yeah. sort of feel the right of putting words in their mouth, and they're sometimes a bit contrived the way that they speak and act. Whereas those character ones, the story can be a little bit meandering and sometimes not boring yeah. but like you know what I mean it doesn't have a through a clear through line yeah. and so he's saying the the sweet spot is when you can sort of marry those two disciplines or those two approaches and yeah then you, and you that, that's when you create that compelling story that's happening to a really interesting compelling three-dimensional character I love it if you've got your story you're not allowed to touch it until you go and spend <laughs> a month with those characters yeah. and that kind of and vice versa if you've got those characters Put them in a box yeah. and now spend a month with this story but before you can get them out and put them into it again and exactly. stuff like that. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I look, this is all uh, in hindsight, or a lot of it is, anyways, because when I when I got that first book deal, I think I've inherited this approach from my mum of like, how hard can it be? And then you start the thing <laughs> and then yeah. you find out, oh, yeah. damn, that's yeah. not, this is not an easy thing. I, I, that, that saying, you know, everyone's got a book in them. Yeah, I thought I had at least one in me, but I didn't know how to write it. I didn't, I literally didn't know the mechanics of writing mm. a book, the technique. So I would find myself Googling like really basic things. I guess if I'd done an MA or something, I would know all this stuff, but I didn't. I just read mm-hmm. a lot. And actually that that prepares you to a degree to write a book, but it doesn't pr- prepare you completely. Yeah. So there was just stuff I just didn't if, know. If you eat a lot of f- food, you'll know flavors and taste, <laughs> but you might not know how to actually make them. You'll, exactly. like, you'll have a bit of an insight. Because you're exactly. like, right, I know what works, but you won't know how it works. So yeah. yeah, yeah. You'll you'll know what you like as well. Yeah. You won't necessarily know, as you say, how to create it. So, so yeah, that was that was a very challenging, sort of emotionally a challenging journey because when I want to give up, I really believe it's the end of the road. Like if when mm. I get to that space of like I, it can't be done. I, I sometimes believe if I can't do it, it can't be done. I really do yeah, buy into yeah. that belief. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I have to be coached out of it. And so thankfully I have a brilliant agent who is just like listen it's a marathon not a sprint I'm here cheerleading if I if I could have the baby myself <laughs> you know yeah, I'd yeah, do it yeah. for you yeah. all that sort of Love good it. stuff yeah so uh, but I was at one point I was like listen can we talk to them about giving the advance back because I'm not feeling this whole process of like taking two years of my life and just yeah. any spare time I have in between acting jobs like trying to write this thing but we got there 
So how the hell did you write a second book then? Because <laughs> the first book sounds like it took a lot. <laughs> and it took a lot of Dude, work. Dude, the question and... is why? <laughs> why, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what made that happen? That yeah, seems... it's, it's bonkers. And this is, I think that creating, especially something like a book where it's quite a long process, I do think it is analogous with birthing uh, a child Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, it feels like it's taken forever. It's very difficult towards the end. It feels like it's never going to come out. And then when it does, obviously you love it to pieces. And then when it comes to having another one, you forget all about the pain. And so (laughs) that's exactly what happened. I forgot all about the pain. I was just like, it was lockdown. And so the first few weeks of lockdown, I was sort of like, yay, I, I, I had a good lockdown. I know it's difficult for a lot of people, but as a you know, introvert. It was like, I don't have to go out, (laughs) sign me up. But then after a few weeks, I realized, oh, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. I need to be working. I can't fuck around here. You know what I mean? I can't just be sitting on my ass like I'm on holiday. It's not a holiday. Hmm. So I had this idea. And so I I pitched it to my editor and then they gave me a two book deal. So now I'm in for two, but I'm like, it's a lockdown. This is going to be so much easier than before because before I was having to fit around acting work and blah, blah, blah. So I proceeded to fuck around and procrastinate and all the rest of it and just get involved in things that I shouldn't. And then by the time I really was making any headway with the second book, you know, film units were starting up again. TV shows were filming. So then I was back out working and I was like, I'm basically in exactly the same situation I was in before trying to fit it in. But what was on my side is I knew the process. I knew emotionally how to keep myself going, how to not succumb to those feelings of despair, essentially, like this is never going to end type of thing. And so, yeah, I, I got it over the line. And it probably took me, in terms of span of time, not actual man hours, but like, or mm. woman hours, but span of time probably took me about the same as uh, asking for a friend. But it was just easier because emotionally, I was able to coach myself through the difficult parts of the process. Yeah, and having got through something once i mean your 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 childbirth analogy is is far better than than what came to mind for me but i always find and again i apply this in life a lot but with exercise specifically cardio if i've got a particular goal if mm. i manage to do it and i don't die <laughs> I can then do it so many times. It's like yeah. I've tried to get to this for so long. It's like when a, a world record is broken yes. in sprinting or whatever, and then it's suddenly Everyone's broken it. next year and broken the year <laughs> yeah. after. Because as soon as you realise you're not going to die doing it, you're like, oh, I can actually. Then there is a finishing line. And yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Be going between the first time you attempt something and the second yeah. or, you know, whatever yeah. later attempts you make is the first time it feels like an insurmountable mountain. But, yeah. um, yeah, the next time it just felt like it was tricky and there were still places I got a bit jammed up and that were difficult, but it wasn't, impo- it didn't feel impossible. Whereas the first yeah. time it felt impossible. Yeah, because you don't know. You just don't know. The, the, yeah. the first time you don't know you can do it. Yeah. As, as stupid as that sounds, you don't know you can. It could be, yeah. as you say, one of those things that you've just bitten off more than you can chew and you can't do it and all this kind of thing. So when you know, it's like right now, I know I need to just push th- through that rather yeah. than, yeah. Well, uh, again, I want to rewind all the way back because... As said, I saw your journey as going from comedy into acting, and it's only been through research that I've seen it was the exact opposite. Um, That's right, yeah. And that you had the kind of, I love talking about this, I've talked about this with everyone from Michael Fassbender to Michaela Cole, I think just you had the traditional British route of like casualty 
um, EastEnders. <laughs> yeah. And again, I, I, I think these things are fucking amazing because it's real, it's almost work experience. It's yeah. learning on the job because there is something that you can't learn in a classroom that you can learn on a set with cameras rolling, lights on, everyone doing their job. So how was that to kind of come through in in that manner and and and, and be thrown in on, on shows like that that are a quick turnover, are a, there's mm. not this kind of, oh, you can really pontificate over it because you're not necessarily the focus of this scene or whatever you're just in we need you to do your job and leave yes yes please leave um yeah yeah, I mean it was well just to sort of wind back a bit because I know Michaela Cole went to drama school and I'm assuming Michael Fassbender did as well I think he did I didn't and so I instead sort of said to myself I did lots of like short courses and workshops and things like that and I said to myself right when I start acting if I start, I'm going to have to treat it like an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And then I got work quite quickly. So I started doing, started off doing theatre, mainly theatre, and then the TV stuff came in. But only in hindsight can I see where the gaps were in my knowledge. Right. So even though it was a really useful um, apprenticeship, th- th- there was a lot I didn't, I didn't know. So mm. I, I was learning on the job, but I was also not learning the job. Or didn't, yeah. do you know, what, does that make sense? Like yeah, there was, completely. Yeah, there were just like real gaps that it's only, even now, 20 years on, I'm still like, wow, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of approaching character in that way. And I do feel like had I gone down the drama school route, I might not have been in any different space in my career, but I, I think I would have certainly felt a, less of an imposter when I started. But I think mm-hmm. I would have also had a degree of technique, which I've had to acquire over time. Mm. And trust myself kind of thing in a way that people probably come out of, especially if they have good drama school training that builds them up rather than knocks them back, which can happen. Like if if they've had that type of drama school training, then they're already quite confident. I was going to say, I think it's the trust yourself that's spot on there. I've definitely had things because I moved into acting with with no training and then have gone back and done a few different classes and stuff. And my favourite parts from the classes are not just the bits I've learnt, but the bits that have affirmed what I was already doing, if you yeah. know what I mean. The choices I was already making, yeah. going them going, here's what we do here. And I'm like, oh, I already do that. That's the yes. reason I've been able to get to a certain level without training, because there's a certain level of natural instinct in there, but no one had ever backed that up. So I'm there kind of going, as exactly as you say, thinking, I'm going to get kicked out any minute now. Like People are going to realise that yeah. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm yeah. just winging it so yeah that confidence that drama school and again we've all been on sets where there's a lot of young actors straight out of drama school and the confidence is inspirational like like it genuinely is intimidating yeah yeah. you know what's crazy as well is that like yeah not only are 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 they confident but they're good they're Mm. so good sometimes like you know i'm i'm working with people at the moment and uh, you know watching their work and it's just thinking it's the confidence to make brave choices and brave doesn't mean you know demonstrative and big and whatever but just authentic like really yeah. being in the yeah. truth of a situation and not holding back because i even still have an impulse to hold back either hold back or do too much and so that mm-hmm. i'm having to manage on top of trying to do, just do a good job sort of yeah. thing. But, or maybe it's in the way of doing a good job. I don't know. I should just maybe free myself. I don't know. But like, yeah, I am just generally in life, just really taken with how confident young people are compared to how I felt at that age. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I was nowhere near there. 
Yeah, but I think all these things often, these things happen and come at the right time. And I think the acting industry is a fascinating one because it is such a slow and long game. And there's so much that's going on behind the scenes that the public never know. There's so many nearlies and there's so many auditions and there's so many, like I've I've learned probably an equal amount on set as I have in auditions and, and self-tapes because there's 100%. so many self-tapes and auditions that I've just, and again, I think it's the outlook. It's looking at it like that and going, this isn't a competition to get a role. This is a little class, a yeah. little workshop, a little thing that I can, I've got that role for this 10 minutes. That's you know it. what I mean? Like, yeah. this is my role for for this period. So embrace that and kind of, yeah, and try and learn f- from it. But yeah. I mean, a lot of people say like, win the room, not the job. Yeah. As in, you know, just make make those folks in the room, the producers and casting directors, have them be fans of yours. Because yeah. it might not be that this is the one for you, but they'll remember you if you do a great job in the room without that hungry desperation of, I've got to get this job. No, just win the room. 100%, 100%. So I want to kind of, again, jump forward a bit and learn, because there was, again, there was excitement when I'd start to see you popping up in big, like, American films, like Lights Out and Shazam and big shows like Sandman and Sex Education and Good Omens, etc., which we're not going to go into in great detail because up the unions, up the strikes. Um, <laughs> but how was it to start to get that kind of, I guess, anything American feels bigger. <laughs> it, feels, it? <laughs> it feels like you've, 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 you've got outside of your bubble kind of thing. Um, and again, it's really hard to explain why or what it is if there's an inferiority complex of some sort. But anytime you get on these big American projects, it feels like a different thing. So, so how w- w- was that? And how did they kind of come about? Was it a natural progression or was there any active choices or decisions on your part? No, I think I think you're right. Because American shows generally, it's not, it's not just limited to them now, but generally they are international shows. Whereas, yeah. you know, shows made in the UK or Germany or, yeah, you know, yeah, wherever, yeah. they're local. Yeah. Um, it's, that's changing as as you know basically streaming services buy shows from different territories and stuff mm-hmm. like that so now we're we're all enjoying south korean shows for example but yeah. yeah american shows do feel bigger um and films because of that reason but i went to live in la basically right and so it was definitely a conscious choice. I, I think what I noticed is, and I was talking to a friend about this, who's American, has come to live in the UK. I said to him, like, do you feel like it's easier or harder to get traction in the LA market or in the in the UK industry? And he was like, hands down, definitely here. It's In the UK, it's much easier. Because right. what I noticed when I went to the States was that everybody goes to LA. Mm. Like, not just people from other parts of America, People from other parts of the world. Yeah. Not just actors, but stand-up comedians, musicians, writers, directors. Everybody goes. And they don't just want to act. They'll do a bit of stand-up as well. Or they'll dance. Or they'll, you know, they'll have a band. Or they'll be a DJ or something. So... There's competition coming at you from all, not to be, you know, have a, a scarcity mentality, but that you're, there's a lot of folks there who want to take up a limited amount of spaces. You want to sit on a limited number of seats. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is very difficult. I found it very difficult to gain traction. I almost feel like if you're from another territory, you're better off getting great where you came from. Mm-hmm. And then going 
to LA to quote unquote make it or whatever. Yeah. This is apparently the advice that Christoph Waltz was given. It's like become right. huge in Germany, don't go to LA. And then he, I think, was cast in Inglorious Bastards from Germany rather than you know yeah. being a working actor in LA and just sort of trying to get a gig. And so and then the rest is history. So it's that that was my thing about all those Ameri- the American shows and stuff like that is a lot of them I got because I was based in the UK actually rather than my time uh, six years in all in uh, that I spent in LA it was very difficult to gain traction I find the nuances of it all fascinating so early on on this podcast I had Riz Ahmed on I've known Mm -hmm. Riz for years from his his music days and he spoke Mm -hmm. about how he went to America because all he was getting cast in in the UK was terrorist roles or roadman type roles <laughs> right. um and he went to america and got a wider variation of roles a wider variation of characters but you you're completely right the nuance of that story is he'd already got critical acclaim at that point he'd already mm. m- m- he'd already proved how good he is at that point so it's mm. not just a guy just turning up out of nowhere mm. and going oh can i be part of this he'd been he'd had lead roles you know mm. he'd been he'd, he was already at lead role level Mm-hmm. therefore it's a different thing and it could be perfect to, to go to America and get a broader range of roles and options because there's so, so much being made out there I guess but mm. it's interesting how those those nuances work yeah it was it was fascinating I mean I as challenging let's say as it was for me in the states and I'm not saying everyone that goes out will find it difficult but I did but but I learned so much and actually mm. you know I do believe I can say this in hindsight you know knows craft you or sculpt you into the person you become. And so all those no's and all those closed doors or whatever were so instrumental in helping me to develop as a creative, as, uh, you know, I started doing other things. I sort of branched into filmmaking for a little while, dabbled with that and, you know, becoming a vlogger and all kinds of things. But it was, what happened for me was I gave myself, or I learned to give myself permission to just be as creative in whatever way I wanted to. And that was a bigger gift actually than if I'd got a load of roles, because that's going to sustain me for much longer than, you know, the odd job here and there. So I, I came away from that experience really filled up because because of what I was able to take away from it sort of emotionally and creatively. I love it. I love it. And you speak about building yourself and getting good in your own area, in, in your local area, in, in where you're from. You've done loads of that. And one thing, there's loads I want to talk about and we're not going to have time. <laughs> but one thing I've got to talk about is I May Destroy You because I think it's just an absolutely astounding piece of work. And I want to kind of know if you know, like you've been on enough jobs now, do you feel you have a sense w- when something is really special and really good? Because it, again, it's such a weird industry because there's so many points in a production. There's so many other other than your performance or your 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 moment. But yeah, do you feel you look back and have those moments where you're like, no, we knew at that 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 was 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 something else, you know? Do you know what? I I actually think that there's some things that not always, but sometimes it's quite hard to tell on the page. Mm. And I think that I May Destroy You was one of those because like you say, there's so many other areas that come in, so many other creative um, sort of roles and that that have to be executed to complete a show. Music played a massive part, but obviously everybody Mm. else's performances were incredible. The direction... And all that sort of stuff. So, so it, it was. It, it was good on the page. You could tell it was good on the page. But watching it was very different. Some things, right. like 
when you read the script, you're like, oh, I can see that. I can see how, maybe because they're more traditional. I May Destroy was a bit of a happening, really, Mm. because what was on the page didn't completely embody. That was like a two-dimensional, but what happened was three-dimensional, literally, but also creatively. And I think the Sandman was a bit like that as well. Again, like on the page, I found it a little bit complicated. I couldn't quite, I'd have to read Mm. it several times to wrap my head around what was happening. And then you see it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what's it's going on. That's what's something up. Something else, isn't it? Yeah. So, so I think sometimes it is even with blue lights, you know, like we had a feeling. That's probably the closest I've come to knowing. Yes, this is this is something really special. Yeah. And you know, a friend of mine, Nabil, is on it as well. And so we were we were talking about. In fact, he got cast before I did, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm doing this show, Blue Lights," and. You know, it's, scripts are so good. I'm like, wow, that sounds amazing. And I was like, I'd love to play a police officer as well. And then I, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was like, hang on a minute, blue lights. You know, when the audition came in. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that, and but even then, you know, when that's in its three-dimensional form, there's so much more to it than, you know, what you can possibly glean from the, just on the page. So you have an inkling, but it's really hard to tell. I was going to say, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a problem. Because it means that there's other scripts that might come through that you'll put in your head and go, it's going to be better when, like, the three-dimensional version is going to be better. And, <laughs> and, and then it might not be. <laughs> like, yeah. You put all this faith in, yeah. you know, I, you know, this doesn't seem great, but, and then if it turns out to not be great, you're like, oh... I should have known that. <laughs> I think I don't think it, that will work. I no. think if it doesn't look special or feel special on the page, there's nothing people can add to it that's going to make it better. Yeah, Do you know what yeah. I mean? It has to be decent already on the page. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Adding grading and music is not gonna is not gonna save it. How good are you at turning down things that you're asked to audition for? Because I've, I'm only just getting into that zone because of being mm. still quite new to it and still feeling quite privilege to be allowed in, in, into mm. this world. I'm only ju- ju- just getting to the point where I'll get a script sent through my agent, say the casting director would like, if you connect with this or if you sure. if you feel a connection with this, they'd like you to audition. And I'm only just at the point where I'm going, you know what? I've not felt a connection. Yeah, yeah. To, to this in general. And again, I think part of it was work ethic early on in general. I was like, well, connection or not, it's my job to find a connection. It's my job sure. to find the character and all this kind of thing. But yeah, the, there's been a couple recently that I'm trying to I'm trying to make sure I'm not being lazy or dismissing anything because I am I'm busy. But yeah, yeah, there's been a couple where I've felt comfortable saying, you know what, I, I don't think this one's for me. I appreciate it. I'm very grateful. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I completely relate to that. And I think obviously as a freelancer, self-employed person, however we identify, you know, it's very hard to turn things down. Very mm-hmm. hard to say no. But it does get to the point, and I and I say this with gratitude, that you can say no. I mean, actually, I think the truth is you can always say no. It, yeah. There's no level in your career that you need to get to before you have the right to say no. If something isn't a fit, it isn't a fit. It doesn't matter whether you need the money or not, whether you want the credit or not. If it's not a fit, it's not a fit. But yeah, for sure, sometimes just a pragmatic thing of just, I just literally don't have the time or the capacity to do justice to this if yeah. I'm going to tape for it. And I've done that before. I've said, look, I just, I just can't. Cause, cause I know what happens. I've done it before. I've compromised myself before where I've had no time. Like I remember I was filming uh, on curfew and this audition came in for a really, really um, sort of big show. And I said, look, no, I, I can't because I've literally got one, two days off and then we're back filming again. And I can't, 
I just haven't got the headspace. Mm. And, uh, and my agent sort of convinced me to do it. So I had to fly to, back to London because we were filming in Scotland at the time. I had to fly back to London. I was learning lines on the on the plane home. And then, in fact, no, I think I flew home that morning to be able to go to the audition. So then I was learning lines in the taxi on the way over. Wow. I got a taxi over. I did really badly in the room, I felt, anyways. I was really disappointed with myself. And afterwards, I realised doesn't matter what the mitigating circumstances are because I could go oh I didn't have any time I was on the plane look at all the things that I did to make it work blah 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 unless I can do the best job I can that I can be proud of what I've done I have to say no because mm. there's no point in turning up if you're not going to turn up yeah and it's exactly it's 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 the counter of what you were saying about play the room not the job you've now gone into that room and not sh- shown your best I've done nothing I haven't won the people. room or the job yeah. I didn't get the job and and I was really pissed off with myself for not standing my ground so I think part of the journey for actors or any creative really is like knowing your worth and standing your ground sometimes it's a no it's a just it, it's just a no no is a full sentence and some people will want to c- persuade you or convince you listen it's a really good opportunity or you got to do it or you it's a no <laughs> And I'll take the hit for whatever detrimental thing you're, you think is going to happen to me. It's just a no. Yeah, I love that. And that's a beautiful n- 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 note to end on. Even though it sounds, sounds like a negative, it's just no. But it is about knowing your worth. And it is about, it, it goes back to all of the stuff we were talking about at the start, about social exhaustion and other things like yeah. that. There's so much in your life that you have to go, no, here's what is right for me at this time. So I guess what's ahead what can we look forward to? I know, I mean, we've not even touched upon working with or on a Russell T. Davis production. I think he's an icon. So I'm um, yeah. excited for, for that. But yeah, what's ahead? So um, I guess um, the some streaming shows that I'm not allowed to talk about yep, due yep, to the yep. strike. But um, yeah, I mean, we're working on Blue Light Season 2 at the moment, yes. uh, which is uh, brilliant. And I'm just really excited for people to see what Declan and Adam have done with this next season. How they managed to continue that, c- continue to sustain that level that they created in in yeah. season one. And I'll say nothing more about it other than I think it's going to be great. And then as of today, I don't know when this is going to go out, but like we're nominated for an NTA for best new drama. So you know that's amazing. Yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, we're we're stoked. And you know, it's like the little engine that could really because it's one of those shows where. It could have easily just become a very quiet little launch and nobody really, or people, not a huge amount of people are watching it, but it just caught on and people really, mm. who had Organically like, cop, as well. Yeah, people had cop show fatigue a little bit, but with this, it it just, they just related to it in a completely different way, which was just brilliant. And then um, I guess book three is what I'm working on, but who knows when that's going to come out because <laughs> it's going to be a long, difficult labour, let me tell you. <laughs> I love it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of all of it to come and have a chat today. It's been an absolute joy. Oh, pleasure. Real pleasure. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. How good was that? I thought that was a really, really good chat just for anyone to listen to. I feel there's a lot of people who would, would benefit from hearing that chat. So do spread the word if you if you feel the same. And check out Andy's books. Check out Blue Lights. Check out all the good stuff 
follow Andy on socials. Do all the things. Do all the things you're meant to do after listening to a podcast. Don't just consume the podcast. Do all the other things as well. Continue on the journey. Don't let it end here for us. Don't let this be the end for us. Continue on with us in your hearts and in your minds. And I'll be back next week with a guy who's got an amazing heart and mind, Mr Otto Baxter. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.